This is Inform Your Resistance with PRA, Political Research Associates. Tune in twice a month to hear experts, researchers, journalists, academics, and movement strategists explain some of the most significant contemporary threats to democracy from the mainstream and far right. With Inform Your Resistance, we distill what you need to know most. I'm your host, Koki Mendes, Communications Director here at PRA. Today, I'm joined by Heron Greensmith to look ahead at anti-trans organizing momentum and trends in 2024, to reflect on the last year of both concerted anti-trans organizing and legislating, but also significant, enduring, and ultimately successful trans resistance and resilience, and to name and call to action the sectors of the left who can and must stand in solidarity with the trans liberation movement in the year to come. Karen Greensmith Esquire is the former Senior Research Analyst for LGBTQ Justice here at PRA and a policy attorney with over a decade of LGBTQ advocacy experience. Currently the Deputy Director of Policy at the Transgender Law Center, Heron is also adjunct faculty at Boston University School of Law. They are a co-founder of Bylaw and the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition and live in Boston. Heron, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's lovely to be in conversation with you again. Thank you so much, Koki. I'm so happy to be here. So I want to get us started. Um, and before we really launch into the details and the horrors of the rights anti-trans agenda, I want to start our discussion grounded in the trans agenda, a wonderful organizing statement put forth by your new institutional home, the Transgender Law Center, that reclaims this sort of harmful language used by the right to stoke fear of the libertary projects of the left. Um, so Heron, what is the trans agenda? The trans agenda for liberation came out of the work that folks are already doing across the country, in their communities, at their homes, um, and does, of course, point to the work that still needs to be done. But like you said, roots itself in in justice, roots itself in collective liberation, roots itself in the voices of transgender leaders of color, particularly transgender Black women and transgender Black femmes, um, who know what liberation would look like for them and therefore can lead us all towards our collective liberation. What a wonderful project to sort of center the work in and to center it in a demographic of people who really are doing um, sort of the, for lack of a better analogy, the front lines of work um, and an advocacy. We've talked a little bit about what our end goal is, um, and I want to bring us back to what we're seeing on the right. So what are some of the most salient trends in anti-trans organizing over this past year? What right and far right organizations, coalitions, and actors did you see lead these trends? Where have you really been focusing your work lately? Thank you. I have the uh, luck to have not had to focus my work on this for the past couple of months, which has given me a necessary breather from the, as you were saying, the horrors of this past year. But I did just release a piece in In These Times, summarizing kind of the last year in anti-trans organizing and the impacts that it had across the country. So I can say this is no surprise to anyone listening to this podcast that we had hundreds of pieces of legislation introduced across the country, and we had 
dozens of instances of anti-trans um, intimidation and harassment and violence. Um, the good news is we also had unprecedented resistance um, and resilience. And of those hundreds of bills that were introduced, mere dozens were passed, which is not to say that this is not a concerning year and the worst year for anti-trans legislation in the history of the United States legislative project. Um, but it is to say that um, along with the unprecedented rise in anti-trans uh, advocacy and misinformation, disinformation, there was also unprecedented resilience and resistance. That is wonderful news um, to have an, unanticipated levels of resistance. And thank you for putting it in context. Sort of, We see hundreds of bills uh, introduced, but only dozens passed. Um, so we can really right-size the scale of threat here. When you and I talked last year, you um, anticipated a trend towards parents' rights um, arguments around for advocacy, anti-trans advocacy. Was that sort of what you saw play out in the field? Yeah, absolutely. And you just asked kind of previously like what, what we saw passing, and I can just contextualize that for us for a little bit. We saw now 22 states have bans on gender affirming medical or surgical care for transgender and non-binary minors. Most of these do face court challenges, um, but a few have taken effect. Um, five states have made it a felony to provide gender affirming care for trans youth. In my research for this article in these times, which I'm looking at for these statistics because I know they're fact-checked, um, I found that at least 70 clinics that provide gender-affirming care have closed since 2021. This is this last uh, fact is not something I think that we talk about the rippling impacts of criminalizing care, especially for minors, um, is that health clinics and physicians who are afraid of recrimination, whether that's to their licensure or whether it is uh, criminalization, will or may preemptively choose to stop providing care rather than face um, potential legal ramifications. Just to continue a little bit more, nine states now have quote-unquote bathroom bills that prevent trans and non-binary students from accessing the appropriate restroom or other facility at school. 23 states now ban trans and non-binary students from playing sports with the teams that match their gender identity. And five states now require teachers and school staff to out transgender and non-binary students to their families and caregivers, even if doing so would be dangerous to the students. Thank you for that bleak picture, Heron. And you know that we appreciate a fact-checked fact always <laughs> at PRA. Um, I wanted to follow up a little bit on sort of the parallels, too, that we see with criminalizing healthcare and the impact it has on healthcare providers. It sounds like that has been an incredibly um, successful strategy in anti-trans mobilization. Um, and, you know, you've been doing this work, you were doing this work at PRA, um, and I've been really excited to share it with our audiences. 
Can you tell us about anti-trans medical practitioners, those on the, in some ways, other side of the courtroom who have had an outsized influence in attempts to block the life-saving, affirming medical care for trans Americans? Um, And how do we block the influence of these practitioners and insulate as best we can trans medical care from the realm of politics? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, I've been thinking and writing a lot about how dis and misinformation played such a outsized role as well in the past legislative session and to incite violence against trans and queer and gender non-conforming people. Just as a quick aside, we know that there are far more gender non-conforming girls and women than there are transgender people. And that trend that gender non-conforming girls and women will be impacted by this legislation at higher numbers um, than trans people simply mathematically. Um, But you asked about anti-transgender medical professionals. So there are a couple organizations who platform and work with anti-transgender medical professionals, including the American College of Pediatricians, um, in order to give these medical professionals anti-transgender writing and research and advocacy the veneer of a broader, you know, base of support. There are a number of anti-transgender medical organizations that are platforming detransitioners like the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Heritage Foundation in order to share the mis- and disinformation coming out of these organizations like the Heritage Foundation and the American College of Pediatricians. And A lot of what these doctors say, they have been saying for 30, 40, 50, 60 years that transgender people are not real. And at the same time that transgender people must show X, Y, and Z in order to assert humanity or right to access certain care. Anti-transgender medical professionals claim that gender-affirming care is dangerous or experimental, despite the consensus of the entire American medical community supporting gender-affirming care, both for adults and for youth. Um, Among other pieces of disinformation, um, some anti-transgender medical professionals outright claim that care is harmful rather than experimental. Um, And this, of course, puts transgender youth and transgender adults who are having trouble accessing care in even greater danger and potentially spreads disinformation into the families of transgender youth and transgender people as well. I can't overstate the danger of this level of disinformation. Um, It has been brought to the highest levels of our legislative halls um, and is causing real havoc among the availability of care across the United States. And can you clarify for our listeners, are these pediatricians who specialize in gender health care, are these people who spend their days working with kids um, and who understand sort of the realities of of being a, a child and growing into one's body and oneself? Or who are these medical professionals? Thank you so much for asking. Um, these medical professionals are dentists and um, endocrinologists who don't have clinical experience with transgender people, much less transgender youth. 
much less transgender youth who are requesting um, care for their gender transition. The vast majority of the anti-transgender medical professionals platformed by the right right now have no clinical experience with transgender people in care. Thank you, Erin. I appreciate that clarification for our audience. So you you named um, the Heritage Foundation. You named uh, the American College of Pediatricians. Um, are these are you seeing the same sectors of anti-trans advocates in the U.S. and specific actors who have mobilized this past year? Or are you seeing new players on, in the field? Who are the folks really driving this agenda? The organizations driving the agenda remain the same. We have the large organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Heritage Foundation the Family Policy Alliance, and the Family Research Council. Um, We also have some new organizations on the scene this year, including Moms for Liberty, um, a large organization that uh, crosses areas of advocacy. We saw Moms for Liberty running on platforms to uh, harm trans people, um, on platforms to erase history uh, from curricula across the country. Um, And then we also had organizations like the Child and Parental Rights Campaign, who represented at least one parent this year, claiming that their child's school harmed their child by not letting the parents know that their child was transitioning at school. So we have some old players, some new folks on the scene, but as always, the large Christian right organizations are the ones dominating the strategy and dominating the funding streams. Thank you for underlining, Heron, that we're seeing the same major actors in the field uh, driving this legislation forward, this harmful advocacy forward. And then we're also seeing um, sort of the introduction of newer organizations that sync up with sort of the trends in anti-trans advocacy in in the year. So, you know, last year you really anticipated this parental rights train of thought and, and advocacy. So looking to the year ahead, what major narratives, strategies, and or tactics do you anticipate in anti-trans organizing in 2024? What are you focusing on at the outset of what is shaping up to be a volatile election year, unfortunately? Yeah, 2024 is going to be, um, I think interesting is one word for it. It is going to require so much of us. And I am I am, I guess, looking forward to rising up to the challenge, but also looking forward to having comrades with me who can support me and whom I can support as we go into this year. We're going to be seeing, I think, a continuation of the replication of the anti-abortion handbook. So we saw a lot of um, some states even lumped together their anti-abortion and anti-trans bills into one piece of legislation this year um, because they're so closely related around um, just the uh, unavailability of bodily autonomy for so many folks in the United States. So we're going to be seeing, I I predict this year, attacks on adult care um, for gender-affirming care for adults, including continued attacks on the use of Medicaid funds to cover gender-affirming care as we saw in Florida this year. We're also going to see attacks on interstate travel uh, as states like Texas 
continue to try and restrict youth and their families and trans adults from entering states that do affirmatively provide trans-affirming care and protect that care in some cases and prevent folks from crossing state lines to access that care, just as with abortion. Um, This was attempted to be criminalized as well. Um, We have so many legal questions around how, but the real ramifications will be felt by, as always, low-income trans people, low-income families with trans kids who are disproportionately indigenous and black and brown Um, who either can't afford to travel out of state or if their state does have a ban on interstate travel, can't afford to weather the consequences as wealthier families may be able to do, may be able to move, for example, may be able to weather any fines. Um, But low-income trans people, trans people with disabilities will not be able to choose between weathering fines and traveling out of state. They will simply not be able to access care. We're going to be seeing more anti-education bills that wrap in anti-Black history with anti-Indigenous history and anti-LGBT, a history, a historical uh, curricula. And maybe we're going to see some uh, further criminalization of trans bodies And as always, all three of these, all all four, five, six, seven, however many um, predictions you make this year, they will all impact low-income trans folks, trans folks of color, trans folks with disabilities the most. Thank you, Heron. Thank you for underlining exactly who weathers these attacks most significantly. And, And again, underlying sort of the the potential for solidarity, right, and understanding where the um, intersecting identities of folks most impacted by repressive policies are. As a somewhat of an aside, you know, we've also seen this year a significant number of ludicrous banning of trans athletes and competitors and things like chess and fishing. Do you have sort of a sense of what the intersection is between um, the deeply impactful legislation against trans medical care and and these more cultural phenomenon of genderizing in some ways, uh, gender non-specific activities? Um, how do these things intersect, relate, if at all? I, I think that banning Um, or making it more difficult for folks to access gender-affirming care and stopping kids from playing with their friends both revolve around scarcity at their heart. And this idea that if you affirm someone in their bodily autonomy and in their identity, that that somehow takes away from someone else's ability to, for example, win a scholarship or win a medal. Um, I'll just put it bluntly and maybe too bluntly, but no one deserves a scholarship or a medal. We do not compete in sports to be able to beat out everyone else, although that is why some people compete in sports, but that is not why we have sport. We have sport to be able to exercise and hang out with our friends and feel good. And we all deserve to be able to exercise and hang out with our friends and feel good, uh, regardless of our gender identity. 
Um, and in, in fact, we would hope that our gender identity would positively impact our ability to hang out and exercise and feel good. I, I think the focus on sports is at once, I think, a coincidence in the sense that um, the Alliance Defending Freedom picked up an anti-trans sports case in 2017 in Connecticut in a state that had a robust non-discrimination protections and was um, the Alliance Defending Freedom was suing the state of Connecticut, their athletic association to um, undermine their non-discrimination protections. And the case took off for many reasons. It took off because the plaintiffs were the ideal plaintiffs. They were young women who just wanted to race and wanted to get scholarships. And the narrative that the Alliance Defending Freedom shared is a narrative that has been used in this country since its inception. And that is the delicate young woman who deserves protection from the angry, large other. And in this case, um, the delicate young woman lost a race to uh, seven other people, two of whom happened to be black trans women. And rather than a narrative of a great runner who was really good and won some races and didn't win others, the Alliance Defending Freedom turned this young woman's life into now a life of a young woman who didn't win sixth place and took it out on two people who live at the crossroads of multiple marginalized identities um, and are now having to suffer with this case over their heads for who knows how long. I think a lot about that case for a couple of reasons. The first is that Two weeks ago, I was watching Lego Masters on Hulu and an ad came on uh, for Alliance Defending Freedom. And they were running a spot for about this case about the athletes in Connecticut who were suing for the non-discrimination protections to be repealed. And secondly, the second reason I think about this case so frequently is that it is such a microcosm of the American experience of the weaponization of whiteness and femininity in order to attack the other, to create an other and then to attack it violently. And it makes me so sad for all of the young women at the heart of this case that the Alliance Defending Freedom is crafting their lives into such a specific narrative that I worry they won't be able to escape very easily. I really appreciate that perspective that um, with any systems of oppression, that even those who purportedly um, ad have their interests advanced by being in the majority, being in the privileged group, are often harmed and have their lives similarly reduced to their identities, to their standing. Um, and I, I always love the perspective that you bring of abundance and that Oh, like at a at a minimum, right? We're dealing in sort of a fiction of scarcity, and this fiction of scarcity drives the politics in such a way that if you reverse that logic, 
right? There is nothing that needs this degree of, of repressive competition and of prioritization of some over others. At the heart of this case is such a depressing mechanism, which is the for-profit educational system, because these young women were running for scholarships. And if we had free higher education in the United States, then there would not even be a cause of action here um, because these women would not be without anything. They would not have needed to win in order to afford to get a higher education. Just the, the, the very existence of needing to be able to afford to educate yourself is, is so perverse in the first place. What an excellent point. I think we see here again, like why solidarity is so important, why abundance is so important that so many of the repressive tactics used uh, by those who hold power would be reduced to nothing if, if the sort of playing field was radically altered. I want to turn our conversation a little bit to what we can do. Um, who's doing the work. Uh, you talked about this year being a year of unanticipated resistance and resiliency. Do you see that trend continuing into 2024? Are people's energy up? Are they organized? Um, has 2023 been a year of learning and practicing sort of not only resiliency, but also building an alternative future? What do you see in terms of um, organizing for trans liberation for the coming year? I think the idea of this year, 2023, being practice is really, that really, I like that reframing in the sense that like, we don't need to get it right. We just need to practice, right? We need to iterate and get better, but there's no way to, to get it done perfectly because we're all just humans out here resisting as much as we can. You know, as I was talking with colleagues about preparing for this call, one of my colleagues brought up the resistance in solidarity with Palestine as an example of what gorgeous, what gorgeous resilience we do have in us that can be brought out, uh, just the depths. <laughs> that is what I want to, I think, underscore here, the depths of resistance and resilience left in us untapped, that it seems no matter how exhausted we are, it seems no matter how many of our friends we have seen hurt or even die that when we are needed to come to the streets we do so looking across kind of who is leading resistance and resilience for folks for trans folks specifically we're looking at you know organizations in the south and the midwest who are doing work on the ground supporting trans people who live in those areas, who are accessing care in their home communities and maybe can't access the care anymore or are facing an impending lack of access of care. I'll make sure to share in the show notes some organizations led by trans folks of color who are doing really amazing work right now in the South and in the Midwest, which is the areas that we're prioritizing this year. We are going to see resistance in ways that we've never seen it before. We're going to see, you know, resistance through drag and resistance through art and resistance through uh, mutual aid 
and resistance through the building of networks to support each other. And I'm really excited to to help folks build the kind of policy arm of that resistance and what it looks like to bring resistance to legislators and to say, hey, we are building a beautiful life. Why are you standing in the way of us thriving where we live? Why are you standing in the way of us building our communities and providing us ourselves with our own needs? And I'm hoping that more legislators will see that beautiful resistance and resilience and honestly, either step out of the way or join us. Those are your two options. So good luck, I guess. That is a a really beautiful, powerful narrative that you're putting forward. Um, One of trans flourishing, right? Not that um, this is a community on its back foot, but a community developing, growing, making a world that has space for trans folks. And so to do anything to stop that would be it's unnecessary. It's why, why are you doing this? Right. I love that. I love that narrative. I think that's so powerful. It also is, I'm sure, empowering for folks to feel, to see themselves in a movement based on flourishing and liberation and community instead of just resistance, right? Resistance without building something would, I think, tap much more quickly sort of our, our, our resiliency and our, our spirit and energy. So I really appreciate that. Before we close our conversation today, are there any other core strategies that you would want to point folks to, folks who are organizing on the left more broadly in uh, syncing up with a trans liberation movement and sort of mobilizing that solidarity where it's needed most? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, this, I think, hints kind of at work that I was doing at PRA for a while, monitoring and writing and thinking about anti-trans feminists. Um, And I go back to, you know, thinking about how the mainstream feminist movement in the United States is outwardly trans-affirming, sign on to letters, endorsing pieces of legislation that would support trans folks, openly talk about how trans women are women, trans men are men, non-binary people are non-binary, and how by comparison in the UK, the mainstream feminist movement in the UK has been captured by the anti-transgender right. And I want to encourage feminists in the United States to not sit upon that laurel as having done enough to not be against bodily autonomy for transgender people. It is not enough. We are facing the same attacks on bodily autonomy as feminists find themselves facing in attacks on abortion. Trans people are facing attacks on abortion too, because trans people access abortion. Trans people are facing attacks on a history of Black people, Indigenous people, because trans people are Black and Indigenous. And I would invite feminists and the feminist movement to take a couple weeks in the beginning of 2024 to read up on trans feminism to listen to podcasts, if you were a podcast listener, like Translash, friend of the pod, (laughs) Martha Jones over here, and to step into 2024 with an understanding that if we don't all have bodily autonomy, none of us have bodily autonomy. If we don't all have access to reproductive care, I'd like to say that none of us have access to reproductive care, but really it's white wealthy women will have access to reproductive care. 
if we don't all have access to a quality education with a real history about this, the United States and how it was founded upon genocide and slavery, then only certain people will have access to that type of education. And that will influence policy moving forward in the United States for decades to come. So I invite feminists to, in, to, to be in deeper relationship with their own bodies and what bodily autonomy is so that we can all be in this fight towards a future in which the state does not believe that it can stand between ourselves and what our bodies are and will be. Incredible. Incredible. Thank you so much, Erin. Those are the closing words for this conversation. There can be nothing better than that. What a wonderful call to action. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been, as always, a terrific, terrific conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Inform Your Resistance with Political Research Associates. Today's episode was hosted by me, Koki Mendes. Sound design and mixing by Alicia Crawford. The podcast is produced and fact-checked by Olivia Lawrence Wildman and Jack Geese King. Hadini Rajagopalan created our communications and marketing materials and Frank Lawrence, our music. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe. And the best thing you can do to help us is tell your comrades about the pod. Resisting authoritarianism is better with friends. Until next time. Until next time.